So we are in Colossians chapter 4, and we are in kind of the middle of verse 6. I'll begin reading in verse 2 once again and read through 6. He says, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, and at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am imprisoned, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the last couple of weeks, we are in verses 5 and 6, dealing with the word, uh, you know, conducting how we are to, to live our lives as believers. The idea is that we are to live wisely. Live wisely means we are applying basically the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the word of God to our lives. And here what he's talking about is in particular in the way that we treat outsiders or those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, so, that, so that would then infer that we are to be consciously aware that those individuals do not know Christ. That then should affect the way that we treat them, the way that we think about them, the way that we um, have conversations with them. So that would then mean, it's not then that everything you say has to be scripture because you're trying to evangelize them. But it does mean that we are to be aware of that. That that individual does not know Christ. That individual, when they, when they die, they're going to go to a Christless eternity. You know, that's not, that's not it's, we're not trying to manipulate us into forcing us to be a certain way, but that is reality. That then should, I believe, should give to us uh, added motivation to be patient and kind with those individuals. We, sh we should have an understanding. So let's, let's just say that that individual is one who is aggravating. Uh, an individual who maybe, maybe they don't live up to their responsibilities and that bothers us. Maybe they treat others poorly. You know, there could be a lot of different things that may bother us about that individual. But if that individual is not a believer, we at least have some sense of why they are that way. Remember, the scripture makes it clear that a non-believer is in bondage to sin. God is not something that guides them and directs them in their life. They do have a knowledge that God does exist. But remember, Romans tells us that man does what? He suppresses that truth. He, he's, he's trying to get away from, from the implications that God really does exist. Right? And they know that God exists. So we, we are to have then this built-in understanding of what's going on in their life so that, and we would then treat them accordingly. Um, I think I, last time we met, I talked to you about a, a story about uh, an inmate who was brought in um, to our dorm who was always, every time you spoke to him, he would yell at you in your face, like at the top of his lungs. And that he was, it was getting uh, to a point, people were very agitated with him, they, you know, Jail settings are already rough enough, uh, but, but you know, there were those who, they wanted to hit him. They knew if they hit him, that meant 
they would get in trouble, they would go to isolation, they would lose privileges, but it's one of those situations where he is so in your face and just screaming and yelling, it's, they're thinking this may be worth it. And then what happened was, is on that particular day, it was a Friday when he came in, and uh, he was kind of making short work of this where several of the guys were wanting to jump this individual. We had a big get together because it was the discipleship dorm that I had and another individual had come in at the same time and he stood up, which was unusual because we would talk about whatever. You know, there was really nothing off the table except for their case. But he explained that he had grown up with this, with this guy and basically the guy was raised by a single mom. She had many different boyfriends. One day, uh, he came home and one of her boyfriends was beating her up and he was trying to get the guy to stop and it was a big guy and he couldn't get the guy to stop hitting his mom. He grabbed the baseball bat to hit the guy. The guy turned around, grabbed the bat and hit him in the head, uh, knocked him unconscious, you know, da- did, did a lot of damage to him. And then ever since that uh, time, whenever he was released from the hospital, when he spoke, he would yell. It was just one of the side effects of the brain damage. He had no volume control. So the moment all the inmates heard that story, nobody was angry. Nobody wanted to punch him in the face. Because now everybody understood, oh, that's why he's yelling. That, that they, you know, he's, not trying to, he's not trying to cause trouble. He's not trying to agitate me on purpose. He can't help himself. So instantly... So we have a, a large group of non-believers who instantly, their attitude changed, and they now had compassion for an individual um, because of what happened in his past. So the idea with that, though, is that human beings, because we're all created in the image of God, and believers more so because the Spirit of God lives in us, we have the ability to be understanding. And though I do not know every individual's story, I know, generally speaking, if they're not a believer, I know what motivates them. I don't know all the specific things that motivate them, but I know that that person is going to be filled with many different kinds of things. Insecurities, fear, anger, pride, just all kinds of stuff are going on, that are driving this individual. And so I am to live wisely uh, towards that individual. So that's why he then says, as we already uh, talked about, making the best use of time. So in verse 6, He says, let your speech always be gracious. So he's telling us there how we are to basically approach others, how we are to come across to others. We are to be gracious. Gracious means that you are, you know, we're giving people the benefit of the doubt. We are speaking to them gently. That doesn't mean that that you have to use flattery. It doesn't mean that you have to pretend uh, to be overly nice. He's not asking us to be a phony but he's asking us to be gracious toward that individual. Um, and then, the, but then with that, he adds, seasoned with salt. So there's a lot of discussion and commentaries about what Paul really means about salt here. And he's talking about, is he talking about salt, where you use a large amount of salt to preserve meat? Uh, is he talking about the kind of salt that you use that can enhance the flavor uh, of foods? I think at least the general idea is this. Salt is used to influence, right? It's used to influence the food, whether you're trying to preserve the food, make the, bring out the flavor. I don't know, there's a big, I guess, debate. It's just people's opinions. So when it comes to watermelon, do you use salt or not? 
Yes, you use salt. <laughs> I say you use salt. In fact, after you use salt, you eat a layer and add more salt. But anyway, uh, <laughs> but the idea is you, you, you want to influence the taste. So the, so the idea here is we do want to influence other people. All right, you want to influence them. The reason why I say it that way is because sometimes well-meaning people try to manipulate Christians by making them feel guilty because they're not always witnessing for Christ. And the idea being that, you're, that well, you should be sharing the gospel with them. Well, we should be. That is true. There's not always opportunities to share the gospel, but there are a lot of ways to influence an individual for the gospel. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ways to even, because you can't always even get to that point. You, you can't meet someone, well, sometimes you can, but you don't normally meet an individual and within five minutes start sharing the gospel. That can happen, but it's usually, unu it's usually unusual. The idea is to get to know them, to befriend them. Um, you know, take a genuine interest in them. You want to influence them in many different ways. One of them is to influence them to be open to talk about different things, which would include religion. Um, so sometimes, sometimes we do that by letting them know that we are willing to talk about those things, that we're not going to be judgmental. Um, whatever the case may happen to be, you want to kind of find out where, where that person comes from so you can try to steer a conversation in particular ways, maybe to let them know where you're coming from. Like what I'll do sometimes with individuals when, when we're talking, because I know a lot of people get really weird about talking about religion. They just don't like to do it. And then if they find out I'm a pastor, they get really weird. Um, and they know they don't want to do that. So I don't always tell them right away that I'm a pastor. I mean, I don't lie. If they ask me what I do, I'll tell them. Uh, but sometimes what I'll do is, if, they, if, they end up, if we end up talking about something that's kind of quasi-religious, I will make sure I throw out some kind of phrase where I will say something like, I believe that what's really important when it comes to religion is that we can prove it to be true. Because they're not used to hearing stuff like that when it comes to religion. You know, they think, because most of the world thinks that religion is nothing more than, well, Everybody has their own faith, and what they mean by that is everybody has their own opinion, and you believe certain things, and it doesn't really matter if it's true or not true, if it makes you feel a certain way, and they just kind of want to flow with it that way. So I want to start from the beginning to let them know that I think differently, that there are many people like me that think differently, and that it matters what we believe, and it matters if it's true or not. It, it, it's not about just making someone feel good. Right? That, that doesn't really help you too much when it gets down to the nitty-gritty. You know, if you're, you know, I mean, I'll bring it up to an individual if the opportunity is there. I say, so, uh, so you're not telling me then that if somebody loses their mom or dad to cancer, that all that matters is they believe something that makes them feel good? And normally they go, well, I'm not saying that. Well, then what are you saying? And they usually are unable to really explain what they mean by that, which is okay. Uh, we're not trying to stump them, but, I, but we want to influence them. And so we want to begin to place different ideas, kind of put it out in the open, that what we think about those things, and then try and move them in that direction to where perhaps we can have a meaningful talk about religious things. And it, you know, obviously you pray, you ask God to give you wisdom, ask God to give you opportunities, and then when you do, maybe drop some hints or, or say a few things, you ask the Lord to use that in that person's life for them to begin to think about that, 
that you know they've not thought about it before. I was talking to a, a guy once. He was actually a, he was a biker, uh, you know, tattoos, long hair, the whole deal. How we got in the conversation, I have no idea. We were both sitting in the lobby of a, of a hotel, um, and I, I think I think what it was happening was I was at a, uh, a it was a, an association, a jail association meeting. So it was a, there was a bunch of officers around, but they weren't in uniform. But anyway, this guy's there, and he was a recovering alcoholic. He was a very nice guy, very talkative. And so we're just kind of talking, you know, and then he says in this booming voice, well, you know what they say, as long as you have faith in faith. <laughs> and I sat there and I, I said, hey, dude, you don't really believe that, do you? Oh, yeah. And he starts to go through all this stuff. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I said, I mean, you kind of know what that means, right? He goes, w what do you mean I know what it means? I said, well, you know what faith is. Well, now he doesn't want to say anything. He goes, well, not really. I said, well, it's trust. So if I say I have faith in the Bible, that means I trust the Bible. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I said, okay. So what you're saying is, instead of saying you've got to have faith in faith, you've got to have trust in trust. He goes, that sounds rather dumb, doesn't it? I said, well, yeah. I said, because so many people say you got to have faith in faith, but that's really what you're saying. So then he says, so what should I be saying? <laughs> I said, well, I said, I don't know what you've put your trust in. I said, I put, my, I put my trust in a person, which is Jesus Christ. I said, so I have gathered from our conversation, you're not a Christian. It's okay. But I, would, I do wonder who or what is it you put your trust in? He said, man, I got to think about that one. I said, okay. So the thing is, is that there's all, so now I never met the guy again after that, but I prayed for him and perhaps one day he'll have another conversation with another believer and some things will come up and he'll remember that because that's, that's happened to people before. I've met inmates who told me about conversations they've had with different people through the years and now they finally get to the point to where the Lord kind of brings all that together, and now they, they, they become a Christian. You know, they're still in jail, but they become a, a believer, and their lives are getting turned around. So we want, so we want to influence people. We want to, we want to challenge the way they think. We, you Actually, you do. You want to undermine whatever it is they believe. You want to undermine it. Because whatever they're believing in is empty. It's wrong. And you don't want to, do it, you don't want to make a personal attack, but you want to come after what, whatever it is they put their trust in. And so the idea then is you want to have speech that's seasoned with salt, but be gracious. So the goal isn't to put them down. The goal is not to, to make fun of them or tell them they're dumb. It's none of those things. Um, in fact, I think we should always assume that whenever they speak of religious things that they're very serious. They may not be, but you're not going to make a mistake if you assume they're very serious. Then if you, then if you realize in time that they're just kind of playing a word game, then you can deal with that later. But you want to take them very seriously. Because it's a very serious, sometimes very personal issue, and we, and we want to get to that point. It is difficult, I think, to share the gospel with somebody if you've been making fun of them. That they're not going to really hear what you're saying. So we, you don't want to go that route. So that's, that's the, 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 what they're talking about here. Now, when Paul says all these things, I do think, based on some the books I've read about the culture during that time, that people back then in that society were really very open about talking about religion. They, they didn't have the stigma that it has today kind of in our culture. 
So people were very open and very willing to talk about things. Uh, they, they took whatever faith they had really very seriously, whatever family gods they believed in, whatever it happened to be, they were very serious about that. But, but they were also very open to um, having a, a blunt conversation. We used to be able to do that in our country, have a very blunt conversation where you could talk to an individual and you could say, I believe that what you are thinking is wrong, and they wouldn't be offended. They would say, well, why do you think it's wrong? And you would tell them your reasons, and then they would tell you their reasons why they think you're wrong or why they're right. And you may go back and forth for half an hour, and you may not gain ground, but you both would say, oh, this is a good conversation. We should do that again. People will look forward to that. Nowadays, they go, oh, I'm offended. I can't believe you say that. So it's more difficult today. But again, it can still be done. And we just, we just keep asking God for wisdom uh, to do that. And there are definitely ways to do that. So again, he tells us here that, again, we want our speech always to be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you, you may know how you ought to answer each person. So when it comes to that, you know, in Proverbs, it, there's uh, uh, two verses that seem to contradict each other. One says that you should never answer a fool. And then the other one says you should always answer a fool. And so when you get into studying that, what in the world's going on? So there's this idea that's presented in the scripture that there are times that you answer a fool according to his foolishness so he can see its foolishness. That's kind of the idea. There's other times you don't answer a fool according to his foolishness because you don't want him to pull you into a foolish discussion. The idea is there's, there's a strategy or there's a reason why you, are, you will say or do the things that you're saying. There, there's an object, there's a goal with that. And of course the goal is always what? To discuss the truth, to help them discover the truth. Uh, one thing to keep in mind when you do talk to unbelievers is normally people don't want you to tell them what the truth is. They don't want to be told anything. Right? Their pride can get involved. Our goal is to help lead them to the truth to where it becomes clear. They may not respond, but you want to help them to discover the truth. You want to help them to see it for themselves. Uh, you may get to the point to where they say, so you're telling me, or, and, and you can kind of tell them certain things, but you normally just can't walk up to somebody and just tell them. I don't know about you, but if I, if I go to an event downtown, and I park my car, and let's say there's no signs anywhere, and some guy walks into me and says, you can't park there. My first thought is not, oh, well, let me move my car. That's not my first thought. My first thought is, why not? I, I, I don't see any signs. Now, I'm not going to be argumentative, but I don't know who the guy is. He's not in a uniform. I don't know if he has any authority to say what he's saying. And I don't see any sign prohibiting me from parking here. So what gives? How, how do I know that what you're telling me is the truth? Okay, that would be, that's the normal thing. All right, so we, we want to kind of engage in that kind of activity where we ask questions uh, to kind of, kind of get to that point um, so that we can, so we can discover what's going on, help them to discover what's going on. So moving on, Paul now is going to begin to finish the letter. So he's gone through all this uh, talk about their conduct and their speech. And so then he says in verse 7, uh, Tysicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant of the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. 
So Paul has this very, he has a pretty close relationship with these individuals. So he mentions some, a, a couple of individuals, he's going to mention some more in a minute. And these individuals are going to explain to them how Paul is doing. They want to know what, you know, because Paul was always getting in trouble, getting arrested, going to prison. There was all kind of trouble with Paul. And, and, and there was people who wanted Paul dead. And they, people are aware of that. So they want to know how he's doing, what, you know, how things are going. Uh, he wants their hearts to be encouraged. Okay, I don't know about you, but, but when I read, or when I hear, normally it's through reading, but when I hear about uh, Christians in other countries who are undergoing persecution, I'm never happy that's happening. But when I hear what's happening and hear how Christians respond, I'm encouraged by that. I mean, it, it's, it's uplifting. I mean, I, I'm praying for them, but I'm encouraged by the strength of their faith. I mean, it, it, it's, I never doubt that Christianity is real and true in every way. I never doubt that. But I think I've shared with you the story. It was a, it was a very brief blurb that I read last year. It was about that 15-year-old uh, boy in, and I don't remember if it was Afghanistan or Iran or Iraq. I don't remember. It was a Middle Eastern country, basically a Muslim state. But he, at 15, he had somehow come across a, a, a missionary and the gospel was explained and he, be, and he became a Christian and his family found out and his family was not happy and um, the father had basically threatened him and his brothers had threatened him and so he had to run away from home because they were going to do him harm even, even kill him he's 15 years old so when you read the story, you realize he's only been a believer for one or two months. It's not like he has what well, all these things we have, preachers on the radio and Christian podcast and, you know, 18 books you can read all at once on the Christian faith. He didn't have all those things. And I, I think he had a copy of the New Testament. I'm not positive, but he didn't have much. And he didn't have like a big circle of Christian friends. He, he found a few along the way who would help him. He would stay in their homes, but his brothers were hunting him down. So the way the story goes is within a few weeks, they found him and they killed him. And, but the amazing thing in the story, is whoever was writing the story knew uh, about how he was killed because they were demanding basically that he renounce Christ and he refused to do it. And I was blown away by that. He's 15. I know a lot of 15-year-olds. I don't know a whole lot of 15-year-olds who are going to be able to resist what your brothers are telling you as they're, as they're beating on you to, to renounce Christ. I was, I was, uh, I did, I had tears in my eyes. Uh, it was, to me, it was very moving. But I was also super encouraged that here God provided this young man really this incredible strength to resist to not renounce Christ and to hold the Christ to the end. I mean, man, that's just, that's awesome. And, and there are many stories of many Christians in many different parts of the world where the treatment is unbelievably inhumane. And as I've shared with you many times before, and I'm, I'm a broken record, and I'll say it many times again, when you read the, the top 10 prayer requests that come from individuals who are experiencing physical torture because they're Christians, you don't find in the top 10 
anything about them being relieved or escaping. It's not that they don't want to escape, but their top ten is that their witness will be consistent, that their captors and torturers will see Christ and come and believe in Christ, that their fellow uh, prisoners or inmates will be encouraged and, and stay strong, those type of things. It's unbelievable that, you know, when you, when you read their prayer request, that that is what's of the greatest concern to them. Um, and I marvel at that when I see that. And so um, when we read here with Paul, he knows these individuals, they're going to be encouraged when they hear how God is using him where he is. If you don't recognize his name, he talks about um, that uh, one of the guys with him is Onesimus. Onesimus was an individual who was a prisoner who ran away from, he was a slave, ran away, got saved, and then Paul sent him back to his owner. Um, just kind of a pretty cool story. But Onesimus is there with them, and he's a true believer in Jesus Christ. Talks about him being faithful, a beloved brother, and that he's going to tell them. And then he goes on in, in 10, talks about a fellow prisoner with him, then talks about Mark, who's the cousin of Barnabas. Um, he said, if he comes to you, welcome him. And then he says, there's this guy named Jesus, who's also called Justice. So it's not Jesus Christ. He says, these are the only men of the circumcision, or they're Jewish, uh, among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So there's not a whole lot of Christians, but these men have been his strong companions. And so one of the things that we should recognize in this is that as great as the Apostle Paul was, because he was a great man, was he's not this lone ranger who's like, look at me and how great I am. He, he has individuals with him that are encouraging him and helping him. Yes, ma'am. Is this Mark the one that wrote the Gospel of Mark? Um, I, I don't... It could be. I know, I know that Mark was writing what... You know, Mark is actually, I think, Peter... That's Peter's gospel, but he wrote it for him. He was, he was being dictated. So I, I think so, but I'm not positive. I, don't wanna, I can't be dogmatic on that. Some of, the, some of the lineage things, I get kind of mixed up because I'm getting old, I guess. But we won't talk about that part. Well, this is the mark that Paul, that Paul and Barnabas fought about, right? Yes, because he quit on one of the journeys. He wanted to go home, and Paul was really upset, um, which I understand, but anyway... That was a, kind of a rift that took place. So, but the thing is, is that again, Paul is, uh, there, there's, always, there's always a lot of we. Even though there are these great individuals that God uses, there's, there's a lot that's going on. The body of Christ really functions together in, in, and God uses very different people with different gifts to help others along the way to make sure that the gospel message gets out. And so here, Paul, some of the things he goes through would discourage most individuals to just quit um, because it's very draining. Well, he's got these brothers with him that are helping him and encouraging him along the way. And so his, his spirit is renewed uh, in that sense. Epaphras, who is one of you, or somebody Jesus Christ, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. So here he mentions someone that they know. Not only is this man a, 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 a servant, but they know that this man is praying hard for them. You know, it, it's encouraging to know people are praying for your growth as believers. Um, praying that you will mature in the Lord, that God will use you. Um, uh, 
Uh, and, and the reason why it's encouraging, it's not just encouraging in a psychological way because somebody remembers our name. It should be encouraging because we know that someone is actually going to the creator God of the universe and asking him to intervene in your life and to help you. Um, it, it pleases God to answer our prayers and to work through our prayers. We, uh, again, we want to make sure we're careful uh, that we don't fall into the trap of somehow allowing ourselves to think that, well, I mean, I guess all I can do is pray. All right? that, that we, don't want to, we don't want to go into the direction where we think that somehow that's nothing. Right? That is something. Um, I remember I talked to a guy once, and this has happened on several different occasions in, in different arenas where some individuals think, well, it's just not really that big of a deal that people pray, you know, because that's just so easy. I go, okay. I said, why don't you try and pray for two hours every day? Keep a journal. And he, he said, well, after a couple of weeks, he said, I, I didn't even do it once. I go, why? Because, man, it's hard. It's hard to pray. You know, two hours a day, that's hard. It's not, it's not natural to do that. Uh, we have to work at it. It needs to become a habit. When I hear about individuals who, you know, they said, who was the guy? I think it was Martin Luther. He said he began each day with four hours of prayer. That's insane. That's a long time, four hours. Yes, ma'am. When Revelation talks about the prayers of the saints being a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord, um, and so again, there, again, as I said before, we know that God is sovereign and God's will is going to be done. In, in that, we are involved in that and our prayers are involved in that and it pleases God to work through our prayers. Now, I can't explain the details of how all that works, but I know that that's true. Um, and so we, we become a we become a part of the movement of God. Part of that is we're able to see the grace of God right up front and, and see God working, which is always exciting. And in a sense, to know that we did have a part in that um, because we really did, even though God is not sitting in heaven saying, well, there's nothing I can do because Bob didn't pray. You know, that never happens. Um, but there is this dynamic that, uh, of this reality that... Um, our prayers are significant to God. They are important to God. And again, it is obviously the command of God that we pray. Um, and that we not only pray because we want to praise the Lord and worship him and thank him, but also praying on behalf of others that God would protect them, that God would, would move them. Um, and God does answer those prayers. Uh, if you if you ever studied the, the various um, what we call spiritual awakenings throughout the world or great revivals, um, if there's enough recorded history, normally with those you'll find that preceding what we would call a great move of God, there were individuals, sometimes a, a good number, praying for years for God to move that that, that would take place. Um, I think uh, there's a story about D.L. Moody once. I think it was D.L. Moody. He went to a, a town and he was preaching. And um, he said, I think the way the story goes is, he, he just felt that he, everything was just off. You know, he, he said he was stumbling through a sermon. He knew that he was tired. Um, it was just a lot of things that were kind of discombobulated. And, but when, when the message was over, 
there was, in his mind, an unusual response to the gospel. And he was just stunned by that. Um, and he was very grateful to God that that took place. Well, the next day, uh, he was speaking to one of the, the pastors that had invited him to come to the city to preach. And he was kind of sharing with him that he was so excited about what he saw because he said he just felt really out of sorts when he was preaching. And so the preacher said, well, he says, I think I may have an answer to why that took place. He said, there's someone I want you to meet. And D.L. Moody was, he said in the story, he was very tired and he, he did not want to go anywhere. And he said, fine, you know, he'll, he went with this guy. So the guy took him to, to some uh, um, small apartment building and took him up to a room and there was a, a young lady, I think in her 20s, maybe a little younger, uh, but she was, uh, had been sick I don't know if she was crippled, but she didn't get out much. And when he came in, she said, Dr. Moody, it's so great to meet you. And so then the pastor said, this is so-and-so, and said her name. And the pastor said he had to leave and, and do something else. So he left. And so D.L. Moody's talking to this young lady. And she says, I just want you to know I've been praying for three years that you would come. And so she took out her journal, and she showed him basically what she'd been praying every day for three years. She goes, our, my, this, this is my city, our, our people are dying without the gospel, and she went through all, you can just tell that she had this great love for the people in her city, uh, that she'd been praying for them. And she said, when I, when I heard you were coming, she goes, I, she says, I doubled my efforts. <laughs> and so she would began to pray two or three times a day for his coming, and then on the day that he spoke, she said that, um, she said, I was very tired, she said, but I, I prayed for you especially hard that night um, because I knew that you were only speaking once and I wanted people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he was very humbled and was able to explain to her that that, that night he talked about how difficult it was for him to, to speak or to preach. And he believed it was just because of fatigue and all these different things. And he says, but I want you to know that the Lord moved in what I would think is a very unusual way and share with her what had happened about the number of individuals who had become Christians as a result. And she was, of course, overjoyed, and she was weeping because God had answered her prayers. I mean, how cool is that? I mean, that's, just, that's awesome, you know, that kind of thing. So we just want to make sure we never allow ourselves to fall into this trap that somehow that we're really not doing much if we pray. So as we all get older, you know, I'm getting old, and we're all getting older, Sometimes, as the, the older we get, the less we can do physically. And it, it does sometimes, it makes me sad when I meet sometimes older believers who really can't get around and act as if there's really nothing they can do for the Lord. When they, they can be involved in hours of prayer. Now, I'm not saying it's easy. I know it's hard. But there's still a great deal you can do. That's not doing nothing. That is doing something, a great work. Um, it really is. It's a great work asking God to do great things. And, you know, there's not going to be a whole lot of people patting you on the back for praying, but that's not the point. You know, we're, we're, we're praying to our Savior. He's the one who knows. Um, and there is, there's great joy in that. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever experienced this, but, but there are times when, you may be praying for someone very specific, a specific thing that you're praying for. And the Lord answers to where 
it's clear to you that whatever took place had to be God. There's no other explanation. And you know that was exactly what you were praying for. The, the joy in your heart is very difficult to contain or explain. It's, it's incredible. It really is. And, but I, I think perhaps, and I don't know what the percentage is. I have no idea. So I don't know if it's many or not. But perhaps it's many believers who've never experienced that because they don't pray like that. Uh, but um, I know that sometimes we can be driven to prayer out of desperation when all of a sudden your kid gets sick or your grandkid gets sick or someone you love gets to a bad accident. And we, man, we are, boom, we're talking to God because we know he's the only one who can do anything. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But we need to be driven to prayer for many people in that way. And um, in particular, because of what he's just talked about, one of the things that we need to make sure that we, I think that we need to make sure we do fervently, which again doesn't mean that you have to sweat and doesn't mean you have to spend 18 hours a day doing it, but we do want to make sure that we are praying for the spiritual well-being of believers and the salvation of non-believers. It doesn't happen by accident. Remember, there's... The, the devil is working hard right, to diminish the faith of believers. He doesn't want to see them grow and mature. He's working hard at that. We, we need to be praying for those individuals. Not just, not just generally asking God to protect them, though that's good, but we'll see because we're going to do Philippians next. We're going to see some prayers of Paul and the way that Paul prayed for believers and how he wanted them to grow, to mature. Uh, and we can pray those things. Even for people, you, know, you may not even know what's going on, but you can pray those things for other people. And, and it's exciting to see, to see their growth. One, one of the, um, if you've ever been involved in either discipling someone uh, or teaching a small group, one of the things that's really cool is maybe after d several different weeks, you, you hear those individuals talking, like let's say among themselves, but you notice they're using a different vocabulary. And you know where they got that vocabulary from. Because they got it from you when you were teaching. They're, they're now using words that they've learned. And it's not, that, it's not, it's, it's not a, a thing that feeds your ego. All right? So it's not that. But it's pretty exciting when you recognize that people really do listen. And they, they learn things. Sometimes it can be scary. All right? So we need to be careful. You know, when you... When you tell people, well, I really think you should do this. I remember the first time it ever happened to me, someone came to me and said, I can't believe that it worked. And I'm like, what? And then the person, they, they did, it, it sounded this way to me. I don't think they meant it this way, but this is how it sounded. You said, <laughs> in Bible study, that we should do boom, boom, boom. And that's what I did. <laughs> and I'm like, <gasps> I didn't do that out loud. But I'm thinking, oh my goodness. I mean, what am I expecting people to do if I'm telling them, if I'm, I'm studying, whatever, but they go, I did exactly what you said. And I'm like, and? <laughs> and they talk about how God blessed and how great it was, and I was so grateful. <laughs> you know, and that just reminded me to be even more careful, you know, with the Word of God and with the advice that you throw out there. Uh, because people, there are people who are looking for godly advice, and if you say you're giving it to them, you need to make sure you're giving it to them. And... Uh, so that's why it's always safe, if you don't know, to say you don't know, and to say you'll get back to them. So he goes on. Okay, so we have this guy, Epaphras, is praying for them. 
and, he, and he's praying that they will be mature in the faith, that they will always be, you know, they'll have this assurance, they know what the will of God is. Verse 13, for I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, that is, that is the one that wrote the book of Luke, the beloved physician greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of, Laod of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from, the, from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Uh, remember my chains. Grace be with you. So when he says, uh, I write this greeting with my own hand. So someone else is doing the actual writing. Then Paul basically signed it. Um, and there's, all, there's different beliefs about what was going on with Paul. That maybe he was suffering from, from bad fevers and headaches. Uh, maybe even migraines that would cause him to be unable to see, or that his eyesight was was deeply affected. It's all you know. They're not really sure. There's some pretty good guesses, I guess, as to what was going on. But here he he signs it himself, kind of let it say, "See, I'm signing this myself. This is from me." And then of course he says, "Remember my chains," because he's in prison. And uh, again, the way they normally would be in prison would be uh, when he was under what they call house arrest. He would have been chained to a guard. Um, and that was kind of what he would be used to every day, which would be, I'm sure he loved, because you know, every so many hours you change the guard. And that guard, all he has to hear, anybody can come see you. So he's gonna hear you teaching the Bible all day long. <laughs> and uh, it is believed by some. Uh, and there's, there seems to be some evidence that some of the individuals chained to Paul uh, uh, became believers and one of the things that would take place in the Roman army, if you lived, if you, if you ended up becoming an officer and you lived through the campaigns, you weren't killed because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of dying in the army. Um, if you lived, one of the ways that you would be, that the retirement they had for you is they would move you to a town and appoint you the mayor. That's the best base of what would happen. You would be the mayor. They would, you would have a house. You would have land that you would live in. And then some of the taxes that were collected for Rome, you would get a portion of that, and that was your retirement. And so it was not uncommon that uh, it is believed by some, based on some archaeological digs and some a few things in, in different writings, where some of these officers they would move to a town, and the first thing they would do is build a church. They build a place for the believers to meet, and uh, the word of God would be would be uh, would be taught there. And uh, they can trace some of that, they believe, loosely, but they can trace some of that back to Paul's imprisonment. So, you know, that's good news. One day, if, we, if they start to arrest Christians in um, our country, it's okay. You just share the gospel in, in the jail. I used to do that all the time. I could leave, but, you know, <laughs> if I get to the point where I can't leave, that's okay. You know, we can, uh, uh, we can be used by God wherever we are. So that is it for Colossians. We will begin Philippians next week in earnest um, and begin to work through it um, again, verse by verse. Um, if you have opportunity, read at least the first chapter of Philippians um, a couple of times. Um, we'll go kind of through an introduction and begin to work our way through the first couple of verses. Um, and uh, again, answer any questions you may have along the way. Uh, Philippians is a I mean, people say this about every single book of the Bible, and it's true. You know, say, well, go to Philippians. Philippians is a wonderful book. It is. And then we finish that. We go through the book. They go, 
1 uh, Corinthians is a wonderful book, and it is. And when you finish that, Romans. Romans is a wonderful book. Well, it is. This is they're all wonderful. Uh, so it's just whichever, whichever one you're going through at the time. Um, so uh, Philippians is a book. Uh, I guess the short version is um, it, uh, many individuals are referred to it as a book of joy. Uh, the theme of that is the joy of the Lord. And uh, again, it's one of those letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison. Um, and the people that were there were very concerned for him and were encouraged when they heard how the Lord was using him in different ways. And uh, again, the, 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 the epistles are very practical books. A lot of good, solid, practical things on how we are to, uh, to live for the Lord and live the Christian life. Yes, ma'am. Um, Colossae. Mm-hmm. The city of Colossae. Colossae. Mm-hmm. Where would that be now in days in modern You can, uh, I think, uh, do you have a Bible with maps in the back? Okay. So in, in the area of, of uh, Turkey and in the surrounding area, you find a lot of these. Um, there should be a, let's see if I got a map that shows this Israel. Uh, so the area called Asia Minor, you got Thyatira, Ephesus, you'll have Colossae. It's um, it sits right off the Mediterranean. And so there's a huge area, well it's not a huge area, but it's an area there in the, in the Middle East up where you have um, Macedonia and whatnot. Um, you need to get, I guess you can, you can go online and find it. So if you go online and you type in uh, Colossae, then they'll show you a map. They may show you pictures of the city, but then they, if you uh, just say map, it'll show you where it is on a map. And then if you, you can even type in like um, some of the names of the places in the Bible or Paul's epistles or something, and there'll be a map that will show you where all those are uh, located. Okay. And some of them have, some of them are, are in ruins today. Some of them may have changed names or they have populations, but you can see all of that. Um, it's really pretty interesting. Uh, but Paul went, on, Paul went on basically three main missionary journeys, and you can find that. They'll show you how they have arrows that will point to you where he went on each journey, which places he stopped, and those kinds of things. And then when he ended up getting arrested, uh, and appealing to Caesar, he was kind of being taken to Rome, where he ended up basically being, where he ended up dying um, as a result. But the Lord used him in really an incredible way, uh, to say the least. So, yeah. There's a lot of really, really good maps. Some people are really in the maps, some aren't, uh, but they can be helpful. And uh, it's always, I like it where you can always, if you take an older map that shows you where the city, where they were, with the old names, and then a new one, like where this, what the cities are today. So you say, oh, okay, so we can make, because you know, you hear on the news, you hear certain things and you're like, when you realize where it's close to. Then you have places like Damascus, which is always the same place. Uh, but Damascus, I think Damascus is the longest continuously lived in city in the world. Um, it is like that, it's the oh, there you go. Expert right there. <laughs> but that's true, right? Yeah. It is the oldest Yeah. The Continuously Spanish inhabited, right? It is yeah. the best that since, it created, since it has been inhabited. It has been and that goes all the way back to the time of Abraham, right? At least. Yeah, absolutely. Which is really cool. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, okay.
Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. And we thank you, Father, for the letter that Paul has written to the Colossians. We thank you, Lord, for the many different things that we were able to cover. Father, we ask that you would help us all to be believers who are determined to live by what the Scripture says, that are determined to, to, to read what the Bible says, who want to be individuals who are influenced and changed by what the Bible says. We ask, Lord, you would help us to understand the truth, the truth of your word, and how to communicate it to others. We ask, Lord, that you would grant us opportunities and help us to recognize opportunities to share Christ with others, to do good to others, uh, to be an individual who represents you well in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. We ask, Lord, you help us to be faithful in all things. We pray, Lord, you help us to be strong in the faith and to never waver in our trust in you and in all that you've said. We ask, Lord, that whether we are experiencing trouble or whether things for us are going good, that we will live in such a way that we honor your name and that others may speak well of you. Father, we ask now that as we bring our time here to a close, that you keep us safe as we go home. Father, we look forward to gathering together again on Sunday as we seek to worship you and honor you. As we desire, Father, to be encouraged in our walk as believers, that, Father, we can continually uh, live to serve you and serve others for your glory. Father, we look forward to your soon return. And Father, until that day comes, we pray, Lord, you help us to again remain faithful. And we thank you and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.